And now, please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What a joy it is to be gathered with you all on this Easter morning. Even though I can't actually see you, I do feel that on this morning of all mornings, I can sense a connection, a shared joy. There has always been something profoundly special about Easter for me. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In many ways, faith is easy on a day like today. We have so many great memories of Easter. All the bright clothes and egg hunts and chocolates and the excitement of the day. It's a wonderful day to spend with family. And church is an important part of that. On Easter, we have so many cultural helps for our faith. Now, faith the rest of the year is not quite so easy. That's not to say that I'm not delighted that so many of you are joining us for worship today. I am delighted. As my former boss and mentor, Peter Gomes, used to say, if you could pick one day to come to church, you picked the right one. <laughs> well done. This year, this year above all others, I've been thinking about some of those obstacles to faith. We've been separated from one another. We've not had the benefit of worshiping together and singing together and doing ministry in person like we normally would. But the more that I have thought about the obstacles to our faith, the more I keep coming back to our own distinct faith journeys and how those faith journeys have affected us. All of us were raised with a certain faith, a certain set of beliefs that we absorbed from those around us. I was raised in a congregational church, like this one, that is a part of the United Church of Christ. When I was a kid, we went to church every Sunday. Had Sunday school. I still remember the Bible stories and picture books and the animal crackers and apple juice that kept our little minds jazzed up with sugar. Like my two siblings, I was confirmed in the church. But then, somewhere along the way, as I grew older, my relationship to church changed. The same thing is true for my siblings. My sister has had some profound experiences of God, but she is the only one of the three of us who does not regularly attend church. When I have asked her about it, she's never been able to give a good explanation. Some days she says that church is too far from home. Other times it's a desire to sleep in on Sundays. But if I think she was honest, she would say that along the way, she had a hard time maintaining her faith. Do you know what I mean? The same thing is true, I know, for many of you who were raised in, say, conservative evangelical households. For many of those friends or church members, church formed one of the central parts of their early lives. They would go to church at least once per week, oftentimes more frequently than that. Then, over time, questions began to emerge. Questions for which they could not get adequate answers. For some, those questions revolved around God. Where is God? How does God let evil happen? Will God really condemn all those who are not evangelicals to hell? For others, it was about judgment over sexual orientation or sexual issues in general. 
the church seemed out of touch, unable to answer the basic questions of life. One of my good friends was raised in a devoutly Roman Catholic household. His parents are still good Catholics, in spite of their reservations about the church. But my friend, partly because of being gay and partly because of the clergy abuse scandal, walked away from the Catholic Church. When I have spoken with him about it, however, I've realized that the reasons go even deeper than that. Even before he came out, or the news of the clergy abuse scandal became public, he had lost his faith. His journey had taken him in different directions. Church no longer seemed necessary or even relevant. He'll still talk today about how the Catholic concern for social justice shaped his life. He appreciates church, but his faith, his faith has long since evaporated. You could even say the same thing for many atheists I know. They were raised without church and in staunchly atheist households, but now they're not so sure. The certainties of atheism no longer have the same appeal. These people have become more agnostic. The question I have this Easter is, what is that faith that we find after we lost the faith of our childhood? What is the God we believe in after we can no longer believe in the God of our youth? Now, what does that resurrection of faith actually look like? This is no small matter. As I'm sure many of you saw, the most recent Gallup poll on religious affiliation showed that for the first time, fewer than 50% of Americans claim a membership in a religious organization. And yet Americans still respond that they have some belief, some belief in a higher power. So while rejecting church, many people have somehow found God after God. But what does that look like? What has that journey been like for you? As most of you know, I'm someone who loves history. Ever since I was a child, I preferred reading history to any other type of literature. Reading about people from the past has long given me insight into my own life and the human condition. And, like many of you, I imagine, I've had an interest in Abraham Lincoln. When I was in college, I took a whole course on Lincoln with one of the best-known Lincoln scholars in the U.S. Lincoln was, undoubtedly, one of the great orators of American history. And my favorite speech of his is the second inaugural. For all those English teachers who say that you shouldn't use the passive voice, I present the examples that you find in Lincoln's second inaugural as the best reason why the passive voice can be very powerful. But grammar aside, Lincoln's second inaugural more so than any other of his writings, is a profound meditation on faith, and particularly on how his faith evolved over the course of his life, how he found a belief in God after God. Abraham Lincoln was very much a product of the frontier and the aftermath of the Second Great Awakening. On the frontier, you had rowdy camp meetings and uneducated preachers holding revivals. You also had those who sought to escape the religious establishment of the East Coast and live without any religion at all. So the frontier was a mix of largely uneducated revivalists, home missionaries from the East, and staunch atheists. 
As best we can tell, Lincoln himself was a secular humanist for his early life. Lincoln was bright, self-educated, and thoroughly rational. Religion played little or no role in his life, and the frontier revivalists turned him off. Unlike today, religious observance was not an expectation for a local politician in Springfield, Illinois, in the early 19th century. Now, in his run for president, Lincoln made vague statements about God, but nothing that would lead one to believe that Lincoln himself was a Christian. What's remarkable about the second inaugural address is how thoroughly religious a speech that it is. Something had clearly changed in Lincoln during his four years as president. Listen to these words in the second inaugural. Both North and South read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of, another man's face, of, of other men's faces, but let us not judge, lest we be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither have been fully answered. The Almighty has his own purposes. Here we don't see skepticism toward religion of the younger Lincoln. Lincoln doesn't mock the fact that both sides of the Civil War invoked God for their cause. He sees that earnest men of faith fought on both sides. And while he, can, while he makes it clear that he cannot understand how a Christian could support slavery, he asserts that it's not his place to judge another man's religion, lest his own moral failings be judged in their place. There's a deep humility that runs through the speech. Humility and a reverence for God. Neither side's prayers were fully answered, which, of course, implies that there were sinful men on both sides. God has God's own purposes. Then we come to the great finale of the speech. He starts by quoting the Bible and then moves to a profound statement on the nature of God's justice. Again, listen closely. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which, in the providence of God, must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Wow. When Lincoln surveys the immense suffering of the Civil War, he views it in light of God's righteous judgment against slavery and the role that both North and South had in perpetuating it. 
And yet it is just this faith in God that allows Lincoln to close with this famous peroration. Because the war was God's judgment on America for the sin of slavery, and because such a debt had already been paid, he can declare that it is time to move beyond punishments and towards healing. With malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who has borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. This, these words, came from a formerly proud secular humanist. Lincoln's journey of life changed his faith. He found, through the suffering of the war, a God after God. The God he found was not some trite version of the old man in the sky. Lincoln confronted the fact that, time and again throughout the war, events were beyond his control or the control of anyone else. He could see the hand of fate of some greater force than his own, and it humbled him. He could see the sin of the South as well as that of the North. And out of the immense suffering he saw, he saw it as God's calling to bind up the wounds and care for one another. Just at a time when many within his own party were crying out for vicious revenge. I don't know about you, but I see a profoundly changed man here. Suffering did that. The events of life did that. Lincoln's interactions with people both north and south did that. And a faith in God as both righteous judge and as a force of mercy that transcends revenge emerged deeply within him. God's will had to be reckoned with. This speaks powerfully to our own experience of God. So often we begin our lives with preconceived and simplistic notions of faith. It starts as primarily a head thing, an intellectual thing, buoyed by the occasional youthful, ecstatic experiences of the faith. But then something changes as we age and go through life. Particularly for those who have experienced great pain and suffering, as Lincoln had, who, in addition to leading the nation through its most trying time, also had to lose a son and battle debilitating depression. People who have walked life's darkest valleys have their faith changed. And it is that change I'm interested in. For that is where we find the God after God. We get to a certain point where we no longer care about debating God because the experience goes far beyond arguments or words. At that point, God simply is. And we feebly try to cast light here or there on God to better discern our way. And yet at the same time, at the same time as we let go of, certain, of a certain type of intellectual certainty about God, we cling to deeper truths that have shown themselves time and again and of which we will not let go. As I mentioned before, I grew up in a congregational UCC church in Massachusetts. I went to Sunday school every Sunday as a kid. I loved the worship services of that church. But what really formed me, what really formed my faith as a youth was reading the Bible for myself in seventh and eighth grade. I was fascinated by the Gospels and by the Jesus that I found there. 
I was especially moved by Jesus' statements about faith, about what faith could do. Faith could move mountains. It could heal. It would lead us on a path all the way to the cross. My own falling away from the faith did not occur because I stopped believing in the Bible. I grew up in a very liberal Christian household. There was never any mention or assumption about six-day creation and the like. For me, the thing my teenage brain could not grasp was the faith to follow Jesus wherever it took me. Jesus called on us to give to whoever asks and to give up all all material possessions for the faith. Teenage John wanted to have that kind of faith, but I could not bring myself to commit to it. I needed more assurances. I knew about the Gnostic Gospels. I knew the Bible was written many years after Jesus died. So was it true? Could I fully commit to the Bible if it wasn't true? When I got to college, the first major I declared was religion. I learned Greek and contemplated, study, and contemplated studying early Christianity. I remember how annoyed I got one Sunday listening to a sermon on the raising of Lazarus. The preacher talked in figurative terms about Lazarus' miraculous return from the dead. But I wanted to know, college John wanted to know, did it happen? Could it have happened? How could I base my faith on something that I didn't know was true? I remember thinking of the analogy of climbing on a limb only to have it sawed off and me falling down. I felt at the time that a comfortable skepticism about Christianity was safer than committing to a radical faith which new knowledge might undermine someday. For a variety of reasons, I decided not to major in religion and chose history instead. But the nagging of God never went away. When I finally felt a strong call to the ministry, I decided to go to divinity school in part to learn the truth. Even if I didn't become a minister, at least I would know what I believed at long last. Yale Divinity School gave me the tools to think through my faith in new and groundbreaking ways, at least groundbreaking for me. I learned all about post-liberalism, which was the regnant theological view at Yale at the time. By the way, if you want to learn about post-liberalism, just ask. But my true return to God, or discovery of God, became far more than about theology. Over time, I became acutely aware and cognizant of our brokenness. Part of that stemmed from my own wrestling with how God viewed my sexual orientation, but a larger part came from my interactions with church members and others in the community. I realized that we all have places that are profoundly broken and in need of healing. I also understood that that healing had to come from God. The one thing that we all need more than anything else is grace. We need the grace to love ourselves, the grace to forgive others, the grace to see the humanity in others in spite of our obvious failings and shortcomings. It was that experience of grace, of my own and grace shown towards others, where I found God after God. Again and again, I witnessed healing, true healing, when people could hear a word of grace from God, regardless of the form that it took. My other concerns about God 
the things I used to obsess over so much became far less significant. When I was burnt out and left the church in Iowa, I remember a good friend asking me if I was leaving the church because I had lost my faith. I recall being so puzzled by this question. I looked back at him and said, no, not at all. My work in churches has confirmed my faith in God. It has made my faith real in a way that it never had been before. It became real because I discovered grace, and that became the bedrock upon which my faith has been built ever since. It grew out of life experience and particularly out of suffering, my own suffering and that of others. What about you? What has your faith journey been like? If I were to guess, I imagine that you too had an early period in life that formed your faith in important ways. And yet, I would also guess that you had a moment, a change, a questioning, where you couldn't commit to believe to God, to, you couldn't commit to God or believe in the God that you once believed in. So where did you find God after? God after God? Or are you still looking? Fundamentally, the resurrection story is about this search, this same arc of faith. The disciples had a faith in Jesus that was formed through his teachings, through witnessing his miracles, and following him as, his, as their teacher. Then, on Good Friday, their faith collapsed. That which had been the cornerstone of their faith, Jesus, had been brutally killed by the authorities. On Easter morning, they had, to, they had the chance to experience God after God. They realized that their faith was more than the flesh and blood experience of Jesus. They encountered the risen Christ, ineffable, indescribable, not like he had been before, but somehow very much alive and true for them. That experience gave them the bedrock to believe, but not just to believe, it propelled them the rest of their lives. It wasn't a faith based on proofs, but on having a deeper appreciation for the reality of God. That is the message I see in the empty tomb at the end of Mark's gospel. It points to a deeper reality, a deeper reality that emerges through experience. I do hope and pray that you can have a resurrection of your own faith. I hope that you have found God after God, a belief in God that keeps you firm in your faith and one that you can share with others. And I hope you can feel the power of the resurrection, the resurrection itself, that you can believe in the omnipotence of good in the face of the evil of the, of the world because you believe in God. We as Christians have a great duty in this world. We have to proclaim God's love to the broken places in people's lives. Frankly, I don't care that fewer than 50% of Americans claim membership in a church. That's not what matters. What matters is for people to discover God for themselves on their own journey. Our job is to let them know that they can do it at a place like FCC. We have a message to share. Christ is risen. In the course of your life, has he been risen for you?